Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. The history of music has been filled with technical innovation. From the creation of valves on a trumpet so that it could play more notes, to the creation of the superior dynamics of a forte piano, or as we know it, a piano. From the invention of synchronized sound in moving pictures, to the creation of real-time synthesized scores for interactive video games. Technology, even in its earliest stages, is impossible to separate from the art that it gave life to. This is The Soundtrack Show. Wait, wait where's my theme music? Uh, hold on, let me just, just eject this here. I'll try blowing on the cartridge. Okay, here we go. Welcome to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're going to talk about video game music at its beginning. While there's so much video game music out there, we're going to start with music that was first heard by the public in 1985. 1985. Great Scott, what a year. Just 10 years after the release of Jaws, the world had really changed. I mean, dramatically since the mid-70s. And while it hasn't stopped changing dramatically ever since, we should consider how far we had come in just 10 years. Vietnam, Watergate, they were like a distant memory. So was disco. And so were sideburns. Those certainly weren't in fashion any longer. And fashion, it seemed, was now from outer space in 1985. Speaking of outer space, we now have the Star Wars trilogy, E.T., and the Star Trek film franchise, all of which we have to cover on this show eventually. Not to mention two Indiana Jones films, Tron, Rocky sequels, so much more. In 1985, the Internet's domain name system was created. WrestleMania debuted at Madison Square Garden. Coca-Cola changed its formula and released New Coke. The response wasn't too good, and the original formula was back on the market in less than three months. U.S. Route 66, which wound from Chicago to L.A. more than 2,000 miles all the way, was officially decommissioned. Back to the Future opened in theaters and ended up being the highest-grossing film of 1985. The wreck of the RMS Titanic from 1912 was discovered in the North Atlantic. The comic strip Calvin and Hobbes debuted in 35 newspapers in the U.S., and Elmo was first introduced by name on Sesame Street. The Tommy Hilfiger brand was established, Robert Downey Jr. was a cast member on Saturday Night Live for one season, and Mattel released an action figure called Stinkor, an anthropomorphic skunk supervillain of the He-Man universe, in 1985. Patchouli oil was added to the molds to recreate the character's unpleasant superpower. President Ronald Reagan was publicly sworn in for his second term, and the fall of communism began— and over the next six years, countries like Afghanistan and others would renounce communism, ending with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. A lot was also happening in popular culture. MTV was playing music videos nonstop, and hairspray was applied liberally to rock stars. Some top hits included Like a Virgin by Madonna, Careless Whisper by Wham, which featured George Michael, Simple Minds asked, Don't You Forget About Me, Tears for Fears, proclaimed that everybody wants to rule the world, and USA for Africa, which included everyone, said that we are the world. And according to Box Office Mojo, some of the top movies besides Back to the Future, a movie that we definitely have to talk about at a later date, included 
Rambo, First Blood Part Two, Cocoon, The Goonies, and Spies Like Us. But something else happened in late 1985. Something that changed home entertainment. Something that still rocks us today. The Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, began its sales in North America. And with it arrived a game called Super Mario Brothers. In Super Mario Brothers, we experienced music written by Nintendo staff composer and sound creator Koji Kondo. The music he wrote for this game is as identifiable around the world as any of the pop hits that I mentioned before. Only this was 8-bit video game soundtrack music. I want to pause for a moment to address a question that some of you may be asking yourself. Why are we focusing on this piece of music? I mean, so far we've been talking about big orchestral scores, immersive sound design, high drama, the genius of composers like John Williams, and the glorious sound of a symphonic orchestra. How did we get here? And what's the significance? Why are we covering it on this show? Well, before you judge a book by its 8-bit cover, there are three things that I plan on pointing out in this episode that will hopefully bring a tremendous amount of appreciation to those of you who may be asking this question. And for those diehard Nintendo fans among you, hopefully this will deepen your love for this music. My first talking point. We're going to look at the impact that this music has had by considering the amount of music written versus the number of copies sold versus the average length of typical gameplay. That is, the length of time that a gamer actually sits and plays this game. This is an overall concept that we have to discuss when having any serious conversation about video game music. Second, we'll examine the innovation and technical wizardry that went into creating these pieces, which applies to many soundtracks developed in this era. And third, we'll discuss the creative merits of the music itself, particularly when it comes to scoring the actual gameplay that it was written for. Ultimately, whether or not you spend as many hours playing this game as a kid as I did, my hope is that you'll have a deeper appreciation for the creativity, ingenuity, and impact of this music, as well as other pieces like it. That, above all else, is the reason why the soundtrack show exists. We'll begin with some fundamental video game history. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, Video games were the hottest new thing around. Arcades popped up in shopping centers, malls, and amusement parks everywhere, with people inserting hundreds of thousands of quarters into arcade machines. It was big business. One of the hottest games during this period was a game released in 1981 from Nintendo, called Donkey Kong. The premise was simple. A carpenter named Jumpman would jump over barrels in an attempt to save a woman who had been captured by a giant gorilla named Kong. By the way, the name Donkey Kong comes from the developer's desire to have the gorilla feel silly or dopey, not, as urban legend would have us believe, because the game was supposed to be called Monkey Kong and there was a translation error. That story is not true. After the success of Donkey Kong, another arcade game was made with this Jumpman character who was changed from a carpenter to a plumber in order to justify the underground, sewer-slash-pipe-filled New York-style setting. He was also given a brother who wore a different colored suit, so the two players could play. The characters were renamed Mario and Luigi. The arcade game? Mario Brothers, from 1983. Meanwhile, as arcades were booming, games had simultaneously entered the home, 
when a company called Atari released a home video game console called the Atari 2600. The system was a massive, massive success. Almost too much so. Demand was through the roof, and the system kept seeing more and more games, including licenses for movies like E.T. and big arcade hits like Pac-Man. But with too many games on the market, many of which were huge disappointments to fans, the home console industry crashed in 1983, and for two years, people thought the home console market was dead. A flooded marketplace, competition from families beginning to buy home computers for the first time, combined with inflation and no real publishing control of third-party titles, led to the 2600's demise, and quite possibly, or at least it looked at the time, the demise of all game consoles. That is, until good old 1985. In 1985, Nintendo, which was founded in Japan in 1889 as a card manufacturer, and who had recently had tremendous success in the arcades with the aforementioned Donkey Kong, Mario Brothers, and other games like Punch-Out!, released a, quote, family computer product in Japan that was designed specifically for playing games, which, like the Atari 2600 before it, would be inserted via cartridges. This machine was called the Famicom and was a huge success in Japan. Slowly, they brought a soft launch to New York in late 1985, rebranding it the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. And over the next few years, the NES would sell over 60 million units. In many cases, the NES came bundled with a game, or even a few games. In the majority of cases, those who bought a Nintendo also brought home a copy of... Super Mario Brothers. In fact, Super Mario Brothers' lifetime sales are well over 40 million, suggesting that more than two-thirds of NES owners took home a copy of this game. And, by the way, we're only talking about the first Super Mario game. As many of you know, there have been many released since. So, over 40 million copies of the original game. That means that well over 40 million people, minimum, experienced this game. I mean, I don't know about you, but just one copy of a game meant that my whole family, plus all the neighborhood kids and I, played it over at my house, or vice versa, I would continue to play it at a friend's house. So even beyond calculated sales, tens of additional unknown millions may have also played Super Mario Brothers on the NES. We jumped on mushrooms and Koopa Troopas, we gathered coins, we smashed blocks, and we eventually defeated Bowser, who was holding the princess in his castle. This is where I come to my first point, starting with the ubiquitous nature of Super Mario Bros. and how it flooded a generation of listeners with its 8-bit sounds. That alone is reason enough to come to our attention on the soundtrack show. But even more than that, we need to discuss something that every video game composer instinctively knows. Gamers spend a much, much, much longer amount of time with games than audiences do with movies. Large games run about 30 to 40 hours in gameplay versus the average 90 to 120 minutes of a feature film. 40 hours even dwarfs a full season of television. I mean, 26 episodes at a full 44 minutes in length only equals about 20 hours of watching. So games, especially mega hits with a high replayability, can more than double that. That's a lot of Mario music to be listening to. I mean, the repetition of this theme, I would argue, has ingrained this music into our psyche just as the Jaws theme gave us a Pavlovian response when it came to anxiety about the water. For me, 
This music takes me back to my hometown of Vacaville, California, sitting cross-legged on the floor with my brother and cousins, playing this game non-stop. Reading Nintendo Power magazine, ordering pizza and having family sleepovers, just trying to get to level 8-4. Why don't we take a listen now to the main theme, the Super Mario Brothers ground theme, and then we'll talk about it. Here it is in all its 8-bit glory. Second section. Repeat that section. Here's the third part, or part C. Now we're back to part A. Ooh, a different B. Interesting. Repeat that altered B. And part C. a few things to discuss, such as the sound of this music, which is obvious, and the actual makeup of the melody and rhythm. But I actually want to start with the length. As a general concept, game music is very often written to loop back around seamlessly. This composition is meant to loop endlessly into itself, so you can play for hours and hours and hours. But the actual composition that we just listened to was only 80 seconds long. 80 seconds And there's repetition within that 80 seconds. There are repeating parts. There are other pieces of music in this game. The underground music, the underwater music, the castle music, a series of musical fanfares, etc. But in total, the amount of music written for this game adds up to less than five minutes. Five minutes of music. 40 hours of gameplay. Eh, Give or take on average. 40 million copies. Now we're starting to get a picture of the power of video game music. The amount of times that we heard that 80 seconds. That's what I mean about video game music's tremendous power. It's why we have to talk about it. Now for my second and third points about this piece. We're going to start with the composer himself, Koji Kondo, who was born in 1961. As a young man, Kondo-san was a student of the electric organ, He played covers of popular music and in school was fascinated with games like Pong. As video games started featuring more and more sound and music, he became interested in working in the field of game audio. Remember, at this time, this was a relatively new career path for any musician. Even when I started working in games at LucasArts in 2000, game audio wasn't taught in school. I didn't learn it in school, and that was in 2000. It wasn't really considered a traditional career path. In my opinion, it shows a very specific interest on his part. So Kondo-san began work at Nintendo right out of school in 1983. He worked on several games, but was then asked to work on the music and sound for Super Mario Bros. That's right, the music and the sound. He did it all, single-handedly. 
And according to Kondosan himself, his technical resources at the time were very limited. This brings me to my second point, how this music was made and how it is presented to us with an 8-bit synthesizer. Now, we haven't discussed the history of synthesizers or MIDI or what that even is or anything else on this subject yet on the Soundtrack Show. We'll go in-depth later, but here is some basic information for our general understanding. As we've discussed, all sound in nature is made up of waveforms. Synthesizers, like the one used in Super Mario Bros., create electronic waveforms, or electronic representations of waveforms, with mathematically different and perfect shapes, oftentimes. Some are perfectly curved, like a sine wave. Some are perfectly jagged, like a sawtooth. Some are square waves, etc. Synthesizers can make out their sounds that don't exist in the natural world due to their mathematically perfect generation and manipulation. This is how we know a synth when we hear it. It's an amazing part of the music world that runs very, very deep. But this is all we need to know for this episode's discussion. So, the Nintendo Entertainment System itself, the actual box, shipped with a synthesizer built into it that game cartridges would access in order to make sound. And according to Koji Kondo and other audio professionals at the time, it was very limited. He had to make all of the sounds in that game, plus all of the music, with just three synthesizer voices, or parts, that could play simultaneously. At any given time. No more than that. In addition, the synth featured a noise generator, which he was able to use for percussion and additional sound effects. <laughs> three voices on a noise generator? Well, the voices thing, that seems clear. I get that. But what do you mean noise generator? To demonstrate, here's a bit of what's called pink noise, generated from a synth. Now, if you program that noise to come in and out in a rhythmic way, it can sound like this. Let's listen to a bit of the Mario ground theme again and listen for the three voices. Typically, there's a voice containing the melody, a voice adding harmony in support of the melody, and the third voice acting as a bass line. Also, listen to the noise generator providing percussion. The noise generator is going. And then you have three-part harmony going. Now you have two parts up top and the bass going. I don't know if you could clearly hear that, but especially in the B section there, you had the bass line as one of the voices, and then you had these two-part harmonies up at the top. Um, the bass actually drops out at one point when you need to get this. And then, because it needed to borrow it, because it couldn't be the voice, the bass, it had to be this, this three-part chord here. And then it went back. And then you just went back into just a bass line and uh, a two-part harmony there. I want to add one more dynamic to this technical discussion. It's something that some of you may have noticed over years of playing this game. When Kondosan quoted that he only had three voices and a noise generator for music and sound effects, that means that nothing more than that could play at any given time. 
The amount of voices a synth can generate is called polyphony, poly meaning many or more than one. In this case, the polyphony of the NES synth was limited to three voices in a noise generator. So, when you hear a sound effect in the game, that means that one of the voices in the music actually drops so that the effect can play. So that means if Mario gets a coin or jumps, which he does constantly, then you hear the music lose a voice. If you break a block, which uses the noise generator as a sound effect, the percussion of the music track momentarily drops. I'm going to play some gameplay from the first level of Super Mario Bros., and, and let's listen to how the music thins out every time a sound effect is played, then joins back in seamlessly. It's subtle, but it is absolutely there. This is because Kondo-san has cleverly prioritized which sounds will drop and when, so that we barely notice. Take a listen. Did you hear those voices drop? Listen for this again. Listen to the top voices drop when he actually gets the mushroom. And then they slowly fade back in. There it is again. The harmony voice dropped. The whole melody dropped at one point when he, when he had the mushroom. You get the idea. Talk about making the most of limited resources. As I mentioned in the show's opening, we're examining an early work created under extreme technical restraint. Kondo-san was given a creative box to work in, and it was up to him to get the most out of that NES synth as he possibly could. You know, there's a standard piece of wisdom that I've heard passed around in video game development over the years, and it applies to any medium, really. But it's this. When you're given limitations, or when you're placed in a creative box, it's actually easier to thrive and focus than it is when you're surrounded by whole worlds of limitless possibility. Then it becomes difficult to focus, difficult to know how to structure your work. You see, when you're given these kind of limitations, the wisdom says, those oftentimes difficult decisions are made for you. You don't have to wonder how many voices your music is going to have. If you're Koji Kondo in the early 80s, you know that you're writing for melody, harmony, and a bass line. You're writing for three. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. And now on to my third and final point, the music itself. It may be easy for older generations to dismiss music for this medium simply because of how it is initially presented. I personally love the sound of 8-bit, and I associate it with great memories, as I mentioned, but maybe for others, it gives it a, a primitive or unpolished feel or sound to it. Certainly, it doesn't compare sonically to the lush sounds of a symphony orchestra or even the complex, amazing production featured in 80s pop tunes at the time. So, primitive? For video game music? Yes. But unpolished? No. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. As with anything that Nintendo does, and yes, I must admit I'm a bit of a Nintendo super fan, there is an extreme amount of thought and polish put into Super Mario Bros. and its music. Legendary game designer Shigeru Miyamoto gave composer Koji Kondo free reign to write the music that the game needed, but not without providing iterative feedback notes throughout the game's development. According to Kondo-san, his first version of the music for this game was written after he was staring at the grassy hills and the pretty graphical expanse of the Mushroom Kingdom, and the resulting music, according to him, wasn't right at all. 
It was too mellow. So Kondo-san decided that he would play the game over and over and over again until he had music that matched the speed, rhythm, and core gameplay of Super Mario Bros. The result is a piece of music that, like Mario, jumps up with huge interval leaps and falls with chromatic lines. It syncopates carefully around the beats as Mario carefully navigates jump puzzles and avoids pitfalls. What Koji Kondo wrote was music that reflected his experience as a gamer playing Super Mario Bros. while it was in development. He wrote a piece that captured the core experience of playing the game. Let's start with the opening. This is the sort of ready-set-go cadence waiting to resolve as the player's starting to play. Right? Immediately, you, you have this tension that you need to resolve. And then you get the, uh, you get the presentation. It's a simple outline of a major key. But that simplicity doesn't last for long. The music then takes a little jump up, followed by a little chromatic, meaning the notes that are right next to each other out of the main scale playing in succession, little chromatic fall. Here. Right? And then suddenly, a really large leap up more than an octave, followed by a little jump down. Then the figure repeats. Fun. So we're going to call that part A. Part B is where the core gameplay seems to be described at its extremes. We open with a large chromatic descent, then a second chromatic descent, then with a huge leap up to this exciting high note, then a third chromatic descent, followed by a quick turn into a minor key, as if to remind us of the danger. He continues to flirt with minor chords in what we'll call Part C. He states a simple melody under a foreboding borrowed minor chord three times. Here's a third time. Until we're back to the cadence or presentation that sets us up to go back to the top of the loop. Now, we need to talk about something that we've only briefly touched on here in the soundtrack show. And that is the basic concept of rhythm. We just played the melody, but as we've stated, rhythm is how you experience music over time. How long or short the notes are and how they, in time, interact with each other and how melodies and harmonies unfold to us as the listener. Not to mention a beat or a groove, a rhythm that makes you tap your toes, or in certain cases, get up and dance. The rhythm of this music, combined with the melody and the interval leaps, makes this piece a true standout. Let's start with some rhythm basics. Now, for you musicians out there, bear with me as I review. For you non-musicians, let's go ahead and arm ourselves with a key concept or two. Most music that we hear in our Western tradition, not all, but most, is in what we refer to as common time. And that means that it exists in groups of four. One, two, three, four. Every group of four is what we call one measure of music, like a little dose or a section. One, two, 
three, four. These four notes in a measure are called, appropriately enough, quarter notes. One, two, three, four. Now, in relatively modern music like jazz, Latin, dance, hip-hop, or rock, relatively modern music often emphasizes the second and fourth quarter notes in this group of four. Thus, your basic backbeat. One, two, three, four. This is how people usually clap along at a concert. Two, three, pa, boom, pa, right? You get the idea. Now, here's where it gets interesting. All we need to do is apply some simple arithmetic to this measure of four by doubling the four count to eight. Eight beats in the same measure at the same speed or tempo, and we get this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, and two, and three, and four, and one. Then, if you start accentuating certain beats in the measure, you start getting different grooves. One, and two, and three, and four, and one, and two, and three, and four, and one, and two, and We can take this one step further, and instead of eighth notes, double it again, and fit 16 notes into a measure. They're called, you guessed it, 16th notes. I'll slow down our tempo a little bit. One E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a... That's 16 notes per measure. This is where the Mario music lives, by syncopating and accenting these 16th notes against the backbeat. Let's start with the backbeat of this Mario piece which is based in a Latin or Calypso style, giving it a bit of a Caribbean island feel. And it goes like this. Boom, 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 boom. Again, 16th, uh, syncopated 16th notes. Boom, 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 boom. Then there's the melody itself, filled with these unpredictable 16th note syncopations throughout. You start to hear what's called syncopation. <laughs> That's right, musicians, we make uh, funny sounds. There's one last thing to point out about this piece, which is that the B section is altered the second time around. I mentioned that as we went through the piece for the first time. So to review the first time, we have part A, and part B gives us a series of descents. You know, part A is... And then part B was this. But when part B comes around again, it does this. I'm actually going to play that for you. Instead of a series of descents, it ascends and accents itself at the top of the melody in a way that imitates steel drums of the Caribbean. These are called triplets and are a great example of something that's called polyrhythm, or again, you know, poly meaning many. In this case, we have a steady beat of four, or let's just say two, one, two. And when we place three against it, we get this wonderful laid back and seemingly momentarily out of time rhythmic accent. Here's a triplet. If I did this, one, two, three, four, and played triplets, you can hear the polyrhythm. Two and one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. 
That's a really great detail there. And you know what's really neat about that is when you listen to it, because of that polyrhythm and, and the complicated nature of it, you can actually hear uh, Kondosan simplify the percussion underneath in order to support it. Versus the sort of... Instead, he just has just simple backbeat. That's just to kind of make way for that, that complicated line up top. This is a great little thing that expands the life of the piece because, again, there are a lot of little loops inside this piece. You know, the A section repeats twice. The B section repeats twice. Um, and so this gives it that little extra life. It's a perfect breakup of these sections in order to, in my opinion, maximize the form of the loop. There's other music in Mario Brothers besides this piece. There's the very sparse underground music. I'll play that for you. Hmm. So that plays on a loop. It's about 10 seconds long and it repeats. But it's meant to, according to Koji Kondo, create a sense of uneasiness. It uses silence. It's sparse. It immediately communicates to the player that they're in a very different place than the ground world they just left. That's a big part of this game's design. I mean, the color palette's different. Everything's different. There's a castle cue, which imitates a flurry of strings trilling and an ominous bass line. Let's take a listen to the castle cue. And would you believe it or not, this is a very short piece. There's the loop. piece is eight seconds long. Here's one more great piece that I want to cover. This is the underwater music. Let's just play a little bit of the underwater music from Super Mario Brothers. Ah. Loop. 25 seconds. Oh, what a great piece. Uh, some simple observations that I want to make as to why this piece really evokes the feeling of swimming in Super Mario Brothers. One, it's not in common time. It's not in four. It's in three, three-quarter time. The rhythmic pulse is in three like a waltz. So it reminds us of a gentle dance. And while I've never heard it stated... It very much reminds me of a waltz called The Blue Danube by Johann Strauss II. Let's take a listen to that. Now, it starts off slow, but listen to it as it speeds up. Can you imagine Mario swimming? Here we go. Especially this part right here. Kondo-san has gone on record as saying that he is inspired by not only pop, jazz, and Latin music, but by classical music as well. 
And I think that, especially after Stanley Kubrick used the Blue Danube to depict weightlessness in his groundbreaking 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's fair to argue that this weightless feeling that the Blue Danube offered to our culture's collective consciousness may have been tapped into by Condesan for this piece, as its waltz-like feeling certainly provided to be a perfect fit. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. And now, back to The Soundtrack Show. I wish I had time to get to all the music, but it should be mentioned at least that there are fanfares in this game for when you beat each level. When you lose a life. When the game is over. And when you collect a star and go into invincibility mode. There's also a feature that game designer Shigeru Miyamoto suggested, which is that the music should speed up when the player is running out of time. So sure enough, as the clock starts to wind down on each level, you hear this. Whoa! It's actually really funny when you play some of the other pieces, like Underground here. Ah! Hurry! Anxiety! I gotta get to the end or I am going to run out of time. Let's see what else we have here. Uh, I love the castle one just sounds wacky. I love this. Oh boy. Or the Starman theme. Ah! 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 Anxiety. Ah, my childhood coming back. David, dinner! Hold on, I just gotta beat this level! Or no save games back then. Koji Kondo spent months working on Super Mario Brothers, and his iterative cycle with Miyamoto-san, the game's director, was crucial in getting this music right. You may be thinking to yourself, you're putting all of this emphasis into this piece of music. Is it really there? I would argue with that much time to compose that much music, it has to be there. The demand is that it's there. That's why that game has such lasting power. So of course it's there. Of course it's absolutely intentional on the part of the creators. According to the composer himself, he would write a version, put it in the game, and if it didn't accentuate the action perfectly didn't time up right with Mario's running and jumping, didn't harmonize with the different sound effects, he'd scrap it and start over. Of the six pieces in Super Mario Bros., this main theme, or the ground theme, took the longest for him to compose. But each piece worked beautifully, and each created a strong sense of atmosphere and fun with remarkable brevity, which, as Shakespeare would remind us, is the soul of wit. What we have in Super Mario Bros. is a witty, clever set of music with memorable melodies and rhythms, and has earned its place in history as the most famous piece from this era. Today and into the future, music for games and VR have matured into fully orchestrated, wonderfully complex pieces of work that shift and change as you, the gamer, do. Interactive music has come a long way and has achieved some impressive milestones, and with Koji Kondo's score, you can see that we were off to a great start. I want to close with an email I received from Megan. She wrote, Hi, David. I love the podcast so far. I really enjoy the commentary you provide, and the music selection has been stellar. Keep up the great work. Currently, I'm a member of the University of Maryland Gamer Symphony Orchestra, and you guessed it, we play video game music. 
From my understanding, UMD GSO is the first university video game orchestra, and we've inspired other universities and colleges to create their own video game orchestras. Go nerds! She goes on to say, I would go crazy for a Zelda soundtrack podcast. The franchise has amazing music, from Minna's Lament, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, to the ocean theme from The Wind Waker. Koji Kondo does a superb job of creating the environments through his music, and I can't get enough of it. Thanks so much for writing, Megan, and congrats on being a member of a game orchestra. That's so cool. And thank you for bringing up a couple of really excellent points. The first is that Koji Kondo, after Mario Brothers, went on to write music for my favorite video game franchise of all time, next to Star Wars, of course, but I'm biased, and that is The Legend of Zelda. We've got to talk about some of those scores at a later date. Koji Kondo went on to write multiple Zelda game scores, as well as multiple Mario game scores. Even the ones he didn't write himself featured his themes. Heck, I'm really enjoying Mario Odyssey right now on my Nintendo Switch. And I have a stat for you. According to Wired Magazine, the games in the Mario franchise have sold more than 400 million units worldwide. If that isn't a legacy worth talking about on this show, then I don't know what is. The second point you brought up I want to address. Game music is thriving in an orchestral setting. In my opinion, a great sign of excellent music with wonderful melody and development is how well it translates into other mediums, like an orchestra. Let's listen to a quick clip of the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra as they play some of Kondosan's Mario music. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW and on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. I'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback at the Soundtrack Show at HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.